0: Hi, I'm Scott Mautz, and you're listening to Leadership Biz Café.
1: Hi, everyone. This is Tami Nasir, and on today's episode of Leadership Biz Café, I'll be talking with Scott Mautz. Scott is the CEO of Profound Performance, a keynote, workshop, coaching, and online training company that helps you work, lead, and live fulfilled. He is also a Procter & Gamble veteran who ran several of the company's largest multi-billion dollar businesses. Scott also teaches leadership and employee engagement and motivation at Indiana University, and his insights on leadership have appeared in Harvard Business Review, Entrepreneur, and Inc. Magazine, where he writes a weekly column for the national publication. For today's episode, we're going to talk about his latest book, Find the Fire, ignite your inspiration and make work exciting again hi scott welcome to the show Wonderbar to be here although i can't imagine anybody ever tells you otherwise but it
0: really <laughs> is great to be
1: here <laughs> yeah we're gonna have a lot of fun here folks because scott and i've been talking pre-show for a good long while so i can tell you that you're going to be in for a real treat this is gonna be a real fun conversation So, you know, Scott, it doesn't matter what country you're from or what culture group you belong to. One thing we all want is to be inspired. We want to feel that rush of being exposed to some new insight or idea that kind of lifts us up and makes us feel, yeah, I can do this. And your new book, Find the Fire, is all about how we can reignite and feed that flame within us that stirs that sense of wonder and possibility for what we can create and what we can experience. But as you mentioned early in your book, while we all want to be inspired, especially when it comes to the work we do, only 70% of us actually feel that way in our jobs. And as leaders, this is problematic because another study you point out states that 55% of employees expect their boss to do more than just manage processes, but to inspire them to do more and be more, which is actually something I just wrote about recently on my Leisure blog, which, as you and I discussed, you actually also read and, and quoted to me as well. <laughs> so that was a bit... That's right. And it, you caught me off guard. I read this guy, and he was really insightful. I'm like, why does this sound familiar? <laughs> <laughs> but before we get into the why we're not feeling that elation and excitement that inspiration creates, I'd love it if you could at first explain to us Scott, beyond that euphoric rush, we get why inspiration is important in the context of today's workplaces, and why leaders need to be paying attention to this.
0: Yeah, super question. You know, and I'll start with the latter portion of that: why leaders need to be paying attention to this. Because you're right. I talk uh, in find the fire. I talk about the fact that you know the vast majority of employees, fifty-five percent, say, "Man, I'm really looking for my boss to be." To be inspiring—that's what I want. The other side of that equation is for all of you uh, wonderful leaders out there. Only 11% say that their current boss is inspiring. So that's a that's a pretty big gap, and it it tells you right out of the gate that you know leaders around the world need to be listening because. You know, while they think they're, you know, inspirational, like um, Robin Williams and Goodwill Hunting, meanwhile, you know, your employees are hunting for another job behind your back uh, because you're not as inspirational, perhaps, as you think you, you think you are. So, kind of the first message is to just, you know, stop, be honest with yourselves, and ask, okay, am I being the kind of a boss or manager that that I can be to inspire the troops first, you know, first and foremost? And, and so, but why does it matter? We Tanvir, you have all kinds of people on your show to talk about all kinds of things that are important to you know to leadership. Why are we talking about inspiration here today? And I'll I'll tell you why. This is the simplest way I can put it. Is I you know I talk in keynotes or to anybody that'll listen to me. it, It helps to understand the difference between motivation and inspiration. I mean, what leader doesn't want motivated troops, right? So, and the way I usually put this is, think about it this way. Motivation is the pragmatic consequence of inspiration. It's the, think about it as the engineer in you that it, it goes in a step-by-step fashion with marching orders in hand until it finally achieves its goal, right? Inspiration however, it's well beyond that. It ex- extends well beyond the power of motivation. Inspiration is like a three beers in guitar solo, man, you know, where you're just really into it. It yields a moment of galvanizing energy and vision. It comes before motivation and it shoves it into action. And at the end of the day, with motivation, we take hold of an idea and we run with it. But with inspiration, an idea takes hold of us. And that's where the power comes in, Tanvir. If you can be the kind of leader that can institute an inspirational backdrop, you can create ideas and thoughts and beliefs and strategies that take hold of people. And what my book is about is kind of for the rest of us slobs, those that even us, you know, if we're leaders, we're still also employees in many cases, and we still have to operate as employees. What happens when that inspiration is waning? How do you bring more of it into your own work life? And uh, that's what I'm also prepared to talk a lot about
1: today. Perfect. Okay, Scott, so you helped explain why inspiration matters for both leaders and their employees. So let's now get into the why we're not feeling that inspiration. And as you write in your book, The problem here is that we're succumbing to what you identify as the nine anti-muses of inspiration. So before we dive deeper into your book, what are these nine anti-muses? Could you briefly describe them and in particular how they're blocking our path to inspiration?
0: Yeah, you you bet. And I'll do the uh, briefest setup of the the anti music so people understand where I'm coming from. Part, you know, we were talking before about the gap between people want their boss to be inspiring, and yet most will say, ah, unfortunately, that's not the case. What adds to that is that people believe inspiration is this elusive force. It's mysterious and fickle, and it's preserved for people who go visit monks at the top of a high mountain. And, and, you know, that's that's just not true. What my 25 years of research is pointing to is that in truth, inspiration could be codified and it could be coaxed, that you can create the conditions where inspiration is much more likely to occur. The problem is the reason it doesn't occur a lot is because we've been asking ourselves the wrong question all these years, and this will lead right up to your anti-muses in just a second. Most of us ask, Tanvir, you know, when we're not feeling inspired, and this isn't my opinion, this is data and fact, most of us will ask, okay, I'm not feeling that inspired at work. I, You know what? What inspires me that I'm going to try to go do more of that? Well, that obviously doesn't work based on the statistics that you open this talk up with, right? It doesn't work because that approach is too passive, it's elusive and even when you feel a little spark and get get repressed in far too many soul-sucking work environments so the proper question to ask is well how did i lose my inspiration in the first place it was everywhere when we started in our jobs everywhere you didn't even have, you didn't have to look hard for it everything was intriguing and introduced growth and inspiration and excitement and over the years what I call the anti-muses seep in and start to suck the inspiration out of our work lives. And now I'll answer your question very directly. Here's what the anti-muses are. I'm going to give you the briefest over, uh, overview of them, and then we can, you know, steer wherever you want to go, Tamvir. So the nine forces that uh, that drain inspiration from our work lives. And again, this isn't my opinion. This is based on a world of in a wealth of data. Number one is fear, in all its forms: fear of failure, fear of criticism. Uh, fear of change, and it's by far fear of failure is the number one thing that half of all adults say has kept them from either accomplishing or even revisiting their goals. So you can imagine it is almost the antithesis of living an inspired work life. That's the first anti-muse. The second, and I'll keep this moving along at a, at a healthy clip here, the second anti-muse that drains our inspiration from work, even if we don't realize it, is settling in boredom When we all of a sudden decide that we fall in a a rut, consciously or subconsciously, choose to be there or not choose to be there, and we realize we've plateaued, our our learning and growth has has disappeared. We're no longer making opportunities for ourselves or taking risks anymore. The third NIMU is inundation. And I often say inundation is like the new black, right? It's like the new color, the hot new thing. Everybody likes to talk about how overwhelmed they are at work. And it's really starting to add up and have an impact on us. We, we forget how to make choices and set priorities. Our procrastination gets the better of us or our perfectionism. We, we lose the art of how to push back on a leader and we become inundated. And inspiration has no chance to thrive in that environment. The fourth thing I'm using is loss of control. And I talk an awful lot, especially in keynotes, about how we give away our power without even realizing we're doing it the the dumb small things we do that that beat ourselves up and give away our personal power. It's impossible to live an inspired work life when you feel like you don't even control the outcomes and the circumstances of the very work environment that you that you work in. Uh, the next using is a dwindling self-belief. And the data was super clear on this one being um perhaps next to fear of failure, maybe the most Thoroughly devastating anti-muse of all of them, according to the data and according to my experience, where people, their self-confidence starts to dwindle. They start to wonder, um, it, am I really adding value here anymore? Is the product of my output, of my hours, is it adding up and amounting to, to much of anything? Uh, I'm having a hard time even showing up being present. I don't feel fully respected. Dwinning self-belief is, is brutal, as is the next anti-muse, disconnectedness. And the data the, – the way the data led me to this one was I guess uh, people that have become disconnected from their workplace, from their workers, a sense of camaraderie is missing. Maybe it's a particularly toxic boss or a toxic coworker, and all of a sudden you start to feel disconnected and disjointed from your workplace. The next thing I'm using is dearth of creating. Uh, and I would say out of the thousands of interviews I conducted for Find the Fire – some of the most heartfelt stories I heard, Tanvir, were people telling me, holy cow, somewhere along the line I stopped creating and I didn't realize it. I stopped creating unique output to put into the world that's my unique stamp of who I am and and how what I have to say is special. And that stopped. It stopped. I, I no longer create. And that's a huge source of inspiration drain. Two more to go. The last one, uh, the last uh, next to last one, insignificance can be all-encompassing as well it's all-encompassing as all-encompassing is fear of failure or a dwindling self-belief. This is where people just fundamentally start to believe what they're working on doesn't matter. It's beyond uh, dwindling self-belief. It's that my work is insignificant and my role in that work is starting to feel insignificant. And you can imagine inspiration has no chance to thrive on that front. Uh, and then the last thing I'm using, I'll quickly touch on and we can steer wherever you want, my friend, is uh, what I call lack of evocation. And uh, a lot of people believe that inspiration has to be evoked, um, and that's not necessarily the truth. Find the Fire is all about how you can create inspiration in and of itself in your own way. But it is still true that we want things to evoke inspiration in us. And when we work in a very toxic work environment where it's very difficult to have uh, to be evoked by anything, that's where a, a lack of evocation comes in as the last anti-muse that drains inspiration from our work lives. So. Pretty nine nasty forces. Uh, they, they are not uh, goddesses. They're, uh, they're fiends, and they're hell-bent on stripping the inspiration from our work life.
1: Excellent summation, my friend. And I, I think for a lot of people listening, they're probably going like, whoa. <laughs> Obviously, we, we don't have time to go through all nine of these anti-muses. But let's focus on, hopefully, the three or four that I enjoyed the most learning about, starting with that first one, the anti-muse of fear. Now, as you write in your book, Scott, this anti-muse, and you actually just mentioned this now, is driven by three specific fears that all of us have at one time or another. The fear of failure, the fear of change, and the fear of criticism. Now, through my work speaking, coaching, and teaching leaders and their teams, this anti-muse is one I've seen and heard in a lot of the conversations I've had. So let's get into this. Let's start our discussion of this anti-muse of inspiration by looking at that first fear, the first Fear of failure because you present an interesting visual for how we can overcome this type of fear, as well as some specific measures we can put into action.
0: Yeah, I'll t- um, you know, God, fear of failure is so all-encompassing, uh, Tanvir. I mean, it's just it's so brutal. And the the way I talk about it um, is to imagine a funnel. Imagine if you had a, a funnel. You know, not not that you're doing beer bongs with or anything like that. And I don't mean that, <laughs> but yes, you can picture a funnel if you would like. Um, imagine it's uh, the narrow end is um, on the bottom, right, and the wide end is on the top. Here's what happens with a fear of failure. We begin at the top of that funnel with a expansive thinking, thinking that man, so many things are possible. Um, I, you know, I believe in myself. I believe like this many things can happen. I believe like the outcomes are endless. The possibility is endless. Big picture thinking. And what happens is that fear of failure constricts our thinking and our world worldview. As fear of failure takes hold of us, down that funnel we spiral. And if you can imagine, you know, I have my finger in the air and I'm spiraling it slowly down that funnel. Slower and slower or, or a, a smaller and smaller our worldview gets. And so we're the other side of that funnel where the world looks all of a sudden very small. Possibilities seem no longer limitless but frankly quite limited. And that's what fear of failure does to us. You have the power, of course, to reverse that funnel, and I can turn to talking to how how to to do that, but I'll pause for just a second to uh, to pause on that visual because it really seems to resonate with a lot of people, and they say, and maybe you've experienced this yourself personally, Tanvir. I know that's what happens to me. My worldview constricts when I'm gripped by a fear of failure.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. There, there's that concern of like you start getting, well, this is going to happen, that's going to happen. And suddenly you, you lose a context and you lose actually the bigger picture, I would say, too. You start getting caught up in your own little narrow field of view and you can't see the what part. Yeah. And then what? Right. You kind of get lost in just the outcome and not what you can do after that. So true. So, so
0: well said. And so, you know, the obvious question, people are wondering, well, how do I reverse that funnel? How do I reverse the flow? And here, you know, it's fascinating. I get a chance in my job to work with some neuroscientists and neuroscientists will tell you that, you know, they'll argue a lot because the, the you know, the, the field of brain science is still so young. Like, what do we, what does really anybody know about the human brain? But, you know, the one thing that neuroscientists agree on more than anything, perhaps the most concrete thing in all of neuroscience is the impact that fear of failure has in our brain. And if I was able to, you know, uh, this was a video presentation, you know, when, in my keynotes, I often put a slide up that shows an uh, MRI scan of a brain experiencing fear of failure. And what's fascinating is the frontal cortex, the frontal lobe part of the brain, the part of the brain that's responsible for risk-taking and explora- exploration and growth is literally dark. It's literally shut down when uh, fear of failure is introduced. I mean, we are physically up against a force that shuts down parts of our brain responsible for something that makes us grow as human beings. But given that power, you have to remember your brain is getting engaged in the wrong conversation because of a fear of failure. And you have the power to change and reframe the conversation that you have with yourself about your fear of failure. Let me give you just a few examples, if I may, Tanvir, um, that I talk about um, in Find the Fire. For example... Here's just a few ways to reframe your fear of failure. What if I were to tell you that there's really only three ways you can actually fail? When you quit, when you don't improve, or when you never try. What if I were to tell you that you know, failure doesn't happen to you? It happens for you. It doesn't happen to you so you can be devastated. It happens for you so you can learn from it. What if I were to tell you that when you suffer, you're not the one that's suffering. It's your ego. What if I were to tell you that Your fear of failure, that pit you feel in your stomach before you try something new and scary, that feeling isn't there to terrify you. It's there to tell you that something must really, really be worth it, otherwise you wouldn't be feeling anything. Just like that, in a span of 30 seconds, I've shared four ways you can reframe your fear of failure and your listeners can do the same because not to do it, inspiration has no chance to thrive in such an environment.
1: Absolutely. And you know, Scott, I just want to repeat something you just said, because it's, and you write it in your book, and I think it's just brilliant, is how you just said how failure doesn't happen to you. It happens for you. I think that's just a great way for us to shift our perspective on failure so we can appreciate that our failures don't define us. Rather, it's how we choose to respond to it that does. And I'd like to emphasize here, choose Because while failure might be a singular event or outcome, there are still multiple paths that stretch out before us in terms of how we'll move forward and respond to it. And so that's why when you were asking me about my experience with fear of failure, that's exactly what I noted, how we tend to focus too much on the outcome and we we narrow our field of view so we no longer see that it's really about how we're going to choose to respond to it that opens up all these possibilities and avenues and outcomes and situations that can completely change what ultimately comes out of that moment where we feel like we're we're not living up to our true potential? So, so very well said. And
0: like I said, it's probably the fear of failure is probably the most single, most common and thoroughly devastating block to inspiration and your listeners really do have the ability to uh, to turn that around Um, did did you want me to move on to a fear of change or fear of criticism
1: i can certainly do that oh yeah let's definitely move on to the next one the fear of change because in terms of being inspired this one is easy to understand of how it could hold us dead in our tracks right after all being inspired is about being open to change we get inspired to see things in a new way or to do things differently or to chart a new course yeah, inspirations about forward movement as opposed to standing still. So absolutely, I'd love to for you to share how do we overcome that next fear, the fear of change that can darken or mute our ability to be inspired to do and be more than we are at this moment. Right. I think the first
0: thing is to remember, we first have to give ourselves a break because this is one of the most natural of fears and one of the most natural of things that happens to us that, that blocks our inspiration at work. And just, uh, you probably intuitively know that, but just to prove that, uh, I write in the book about a very interesting, a fascinating study I came across that showed that two groups of people were walked through a museum to take a look at a particular painting. And in the first group, you know, call them the, you know, control cell, um, they were told that the painting was done in 1905. Then the next group walked through the museum. They stopped in front of the same painting. That same group, same size, same number of people in the group, they were told that that painting was done in 2005. Then both groups were asked to kind of rate the the painting for all the attributes of, of aesthetics that you would rate a painting on and it turns out that the group that was told the painting was done in 1905, even though it was the same painting, rated it much, much higher aesthetically the group that was told it was done in 2005, proving the theory that, dude, we just like things that have been around for a while. <laughs> it's just, yes. it's, human, it's human nature. We just we just like things that have been around for a while. So you start with, we start with that predisposition that we're not going to like change. So give yourself a break that you're not alone if you're included. You know if you're included in that, um, it's it's not unusual. Uh, and you know what I would say the the best tips that I can give is. The first thing you have to do to overcome a fear of change is to believe you have the competence for change. And when I, you know, I get asked to talk every now and then, um, or to include in my talks, um, I talk a lot about employee engagement. And people ask, say, "Hey, can you address change and how my organization can get through change?" And I often do tons of interviews thereafter uh, with the group I'm speaking with. And one of the most common things I hear is people just believe like they're not going to survive the change and get. Get on the other side of it. They start to catastrophize and, and, and paint pictures of what's going to happen to them on the other side of that change. And you just have to understand that you've been through change before. You'll get through this again. And it leads to the second point, especially if you think of change like a software upgrade. If you view it as, okay, I'm, not, I'm going to stop forming coalitions of anti-change agents that get together with me and complain about the change and instead, I'm going to proactively view it as a software upgrade, you start to see all the positive benefits of what change can do, you know, how change can help you. Guess what? It's also true that research shows one of the most career-limiting things you can do is be horrible at accepting and adapting to change. So just for that reason alone, it's good for your career and your growth to embrace change. So, so think of it like a, like a software upgrade. I also can tell people to find their anchor in change. And what I mean by that is what's not going to change about your life? You know, uh, I doubt, Tanvir, if uh, you, you told us tomorrow that you were done with this leadership thing and, you know, you know what? You were following your dream of being a synchronized swimmer. If you did that, I, you know what? You know what's not going to change in your life? The people who love you. What your values are, what really makes you happy, what your purpose is in life, things like that aren't necessarily really going to change at all. And when you keep that in front of you, it helps you put the change that you're going to go through in tremendous, tremendous perspective. And for for the leaders out there, by the way, the last point, I could talk, do a whole show just on fear of change. But, you know, for the leaders out there, you have to remember that you got to make, you got to be clear on the case for change as you're making it. One of the biggest problems organizations suffer through change is because the very people instituting the change never enrolled the people who the change is going to be done to, and they didn't make the case for that change clear. They just rolled it out as an initiative. And, you know, you know the old saying, people need to weigh in before they can buy in. And if you're on the receiving end of that as an employee and, you know, afraid of change, make it your point to go get clear on what is the case for change. And, you know what? Our brain treats uh, change like an error. It wants to fix that error. That's what happens when our brain discovers an error. Change is exactly the same way. When we don't know where change is leading, the brain tells us, I need to know where it's leading. Okay, so do your best to go find out and take the mystery out of change by getting clear on that case for change. And it erases a lot of the fear. Associated with that. Does that does that make a lot? Of, does that make sense to you, Tamver?
1: That makes perfect sense. In fact, you know what, Scott? You've inspired me. I've decided. You know what? I am going to give up this leadership beat and I'm going to take <laughs> on synchronized swimming. I just I just love that nose plug look. You know? What I mean, I think it'll look that's great good. on me. <laughs>
0: hey, you. I know you. I know you. Yeah, very good.
1: <laughs> Weren't you that so, leader guy? Yeah. I did I yeah, don't do that yeah, yeah. stuff anymore? I'm all about that's pirouetting true. in the pool. That's that's where my game is at now. Uh, but, right. but all kidding aside, though, I love, Scott, how you mentioned that one way for us to overcome this fear is by finding our anchor. Because, you know, I think a lot, for many people, the idea of change brings this notion that we're going to disrupt everything. And consequently, people might feel disoriented or that they don't feel they have their bearings anymore. And I think... You know, you sharing this point is very reassuring because it reminds people that we need this anchor because it's not going to hold us back. But rather, it's going to be that source of stability that's actually going to drive us forward because now we have something to push against to propel us forward.
0: Ah, uh, very. You know what? You should get like a show. That was really well said. <laughs> I should
1: get a show, eh? Uh, yeah, yeah. So I you know, know what?
0: Like, like, like a podcast show. I don't know. That. Just an
1: idea. <laughs> All right, Scott. So guess what? I guess I'm going to have to table the synchronized swimming, I suppose. All right. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: with your, with your permission, um, I would love to, speaking of synchronized swimming, dive into fear of criticism because there's something I'm really energetic about sharing on that front. You cool oh, with that? Oh, my
1: gosh. I really do because, you know, as you point out in the section, you know, and I'm going to touch it because I love that there's a lot of neuroscience because I do share that in a a lot of my talks and in my workshops but uh as you point in this section when we get feedback we're more likely to remember the negative than the positive which as i share in some of my talks is due to the fact that our brain when it processes information it initially sorts it into one of two boxes is this a threat or is this a reward and unfortunately our brain's default is to view things as a threat which is why when we see any form of uncertainty being discussed or experienced there's no sense of curiosity or fascination. Instead, there's this sense of dread. I mean, if you think about it, in the news, every time they mention there's uncertainty over a particular situation, our instinctual response is to think, oh, that's a bad thing. Even though, by definition, uncertainty means it's neither good or bad. It's almost right. like we, in the case of the Schrodinger's cat, where we have this question of whether the cat is alive or dead our brain's default response and say, nah, it's dead. Because we don't know for certain, so by default, we're going to say it's dead and be done with it. So that's why we all innately dread criticism. So I absolutely want you to talk about this, because I'd love to hear how can we over- override this hardwired behavior, Scott, in terms of not letting the fear of criticism impede our ability to find inspiration in what we do, and especially in those uncertain, unexplored areas that can lead to new opportunities for growth and learning.
0: You know, I this could be its own show, but there's something I feel really, really passionate about. You know, in the in the, in find the fire, I talk about you know, ten different ways you can overcome the fear of criticism, but 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 I want to pick one to talk about that's that's really important. And that is, and you know, for viewers out there, hold on to your hats, get ready for this one. Start by deciding who gets to criticize you in the first place. Here's here's the deal. You know what? boss or your teammates or your mentors, you know what? They probably get a fair say at this. They probably get a seat at the table. But you know what? Bob and accounting and your mother-in-law, they can go pound salt because they do not (laughs) get a seat at the table for who gets to criticize you. And by the way, I'm not saying so infinitely small that you protect yourself and you inadvertently, you know, keep yourself from getting critical feedback that could help you grow. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying you have to be Intentional about who you allow to criticize you so that you're not giving undue influence to people who shouldn't have it because like you were just alluding to Studies show we're four times more likely to remember criticism than praise. So believe me, it is undue influence And studies also show us that you know, and this one kind of blew me away I had to confirm this with my own uh, survey monkey money because I had a hard time believing this but studies indicate that about a 15% of all criticism that we receive is Truly warranted, truly truly worthy, truly worthwhile, and deserves some time in our space and mind. Yet we take on average over 85% of all criticism to heart. 15% warranted, we take 85% of it to heart. And it's for the 15%, by the way, you know, even though it can sting when it's warranted, even though it's warranted, you know, there's part of us that you know, anyone that says they love getting criticized, I think is probably uh, lying a little bit. Uh, there's a reason why it stings. You know, there's there's a real real reason for that. Um, when you get criticized, it activates the same precise region of the brain that's activated when you experience physical pain. That's why when you get socially rejected, it actually physically seems to sting. Now, in regards to that 15% of warranted criticism, you know, what I was starting to say was award-winning theater critic um, Albert Williams once explained why do critics do what they do, you know? Why do they do what they do? It's not because they want to save you from wasting 10 bucks on a crappy movie or uh, because they're mean at spirit. They do it for the love of their art, to create better art. And so the question that I always tell people is in that 15% that's warranted, are you, you viewing that criticism? in that same way, that it's coming from a place of love, that people that want to create a better version of you, better art in the form of a better version of yourself. Are you or aren't you? And as for that 85% that's, that you worry about and take to heart that's not warranted, you have to remember, you decide who gets to criticize you and what value you're going to assign to their words. I, th- I think Eleanor Roosevelt had it exactly right when she said, no one can make you in- feel inferior without your consent. So if you keep just this one thing in mind, decide who gets to criticize you. It's amazing what that can do in terms of putting a dent in the armor of, of fear of
1: criticism. I love it. It's a perfect way to look at it and also to uh, for people to understand of how they should be a little bit more selective in terms of the kind of people they're getting criticism from, because it's really about who's going to help you improve and really be better, that this is tough love rather than just being bitter and uh, negative. Right on. Well said. And you know, Scott, I think this is the perfect segue to shift into the next anti-muse inspiration I'd love to discuss, and that is the anti-muse of settling and boredom, and specifically how one of the ways we can reconnect with our sense of inspiration is through learning and growth, which as we were talking now about criticism, that's what we should be looking for. People who are giving us criticism from a position of love because they want to see us learn and grow because they're giving us those insights. Now, in this chapter of your book, you point out that what we need to kickstart our learning and growth is two specific components, intent that ignites and approaches that accelerate. So what do you mean by this, Scott? And how do we employ these two to ignite our drive for learning and growth, which will help us to overcome this anti-muse of inspiration? Yeah, that's right. And
0: it starts from a place of of intent because nobody... Nobody wakes up and says, you know what? I can't wait to stop learning and growing today. I, I just can't wait to get to work and, just, and kick it into low gear and do nothing and, and become a slug. No, no, nobody does that. So, and yet it happens to us. We get into a rut. So it, it begins with being smart enough about how you have clear intent, a desire to get yourself learning and growing again. It starts from that place. But then you need help with a couple of, of prompts and I offer a couple of prompts in the book. I'll just touch on just one or two of them because then we don't have time to touch on touch on all of them. One of my favorite ones um, to, ta- to tell people to kind of jumpstart learning and growth in their life is to work on your life versus in your life. And I, I talk about this a lot to one-on-one coaching clients of mine as well, where they'll describe their scenario of how they're in a rut and how things have become a routine. And what they're really describing to me is they're really gotten to a rhythm of just working in their life, accepting it for the way it is, um, and just assuming that this is the way it's going to be in perpetuity, and not stepping back to work on it, and making and realizing that, oh my gosh, I've fallen into a pattern of just working in it rather than working on it. That simple prompt has helped so many of my coaching clients to get off the hamster wheel of daily life that you can easily get caught up in. That's one simple tip I offer. I think a, a, another really Powerful one is to let your values vault you forward. Um, I can't tell you how many times in leadership, Tanvir, and I bet you're the same, based on what, you know all the things I've read from you, that I've counted on my values to bring me back when um, I was feeling like meaning was was draining at work, or I was feeling uninspired. You know, you go back to your values as, as the map. It's no different with learning and growth. You know, you go back to all right. What are the values that you hold? non-negotiable and most deeply sacred. And, you know, for example, if like a core value, uh, like I talk about in the book is, you know, servitude, what can you learn to better serve? If you, uh, you value kindness, is one of my core, my wife's core values, being kind to other human beings, you know, What can you learn about from other people and the ways they're being kind to become a more kind human being? Whatever your value is, drawing on that value because the the truth is it's going to be a natural source of attraction. Why don't we engage in learning and growth? Because we're too busy. And guess what? When the first distraction comes up, learning and growth opportunities are the first thing to go. But when they're linked to your values, it's much more compelling to keep revisiting the opportunities to learn and grow because values are so deep and inherent. To who we are um, as, as a person. Um, the last one I'll offer up, just very quickly, is to seek conscious growth, which is you know becoming who you are as a person, versus just growth for the sake of it. Uh, and what I mean by that is, you know, look, there's nothing wrong with, uh, you know, back to you, Tanveer, and your desire to, you know, take up uh, calypso dancing, which we all know is rampant. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, that's, that's cool. And you should, you know, you should definitely you know, go for that. You should get learning and growing. And most people will say, oh, yeah, you want to get learning and growing? Go try something new. And that's cool. You definitely have to do that. That's a big part of the equation for sure. But what I'm offering up is that remembering that conscious growth is really becoming who you are as a person. What can you learn that's going to bring you closer to the true version of the person that you're trying to be, the the values you want to live, and the, the purpose you have on the planet? So just in a few ways like that, you can spark your intent. Uh, now, you steer. I can go on to the second part if you want, or I can uh, uh, dive in on something that I just talked about.
1: But that's brilliant. And, I mean, there's you just gave so much good material there for people to really – you know, sink their teeth on and and ponder. And I'm not just talking about, you know, visualizing me in my first few lessons of learning how to do calypso dancing. (laughs) Because i warned people, I said, we're going to dive deep on this one. Because there's so much ground to cover. And, you know, one of the things here, and when you talk about overcoming this anti-muse of settling and boredom and our ability to use learning and growth, that is how it's pretty much tied to our ability to find opportunities for learning and growth. And you do describe that there is a way for anyone, to find opportunities because it's not about waiting for opportunities to knock on your door, but attracting opportunity through what you describe as the window of opportunity. So what is this window of opportunity, Scott? And how do we employ it to help us overcome this enemies of inspiration? Just because right now I'm trying to think of a window joke and I can't think of one. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. Well,
0: your, your, your staff writers will, will feed you that. Yeah, yeah
1: exactly. I'll, I'll talk with them after the show.
0: <laughs> Don't worry about that. Yeah, you know, part of uh, what, be, what makes us become settled and bored and part of what stunts our learning and growth Um, is the fact that, you know, we just, we stop coming across opportunities. And I can't tell you how many people I've coached that say, well, it it appears to me that opportunities have, you know, have dried up. And the truth is there are many things you can do to create your own opportunities in life. You know, good fortune comes to those who are fortunately good enough at attracting opportunity. So the window of opportunity I talk about is a simple model that, again, this isn't my opinion. This is what data shows us or Proven ways that you can start to generate windows of opportunity for you. They're going to be interesting exciting lead to learning and growth And I'll give you just a, a couple of the proven proven ways one of the ways I, I, that I talk about is um, for example at work people that have um, a, a one-up attitude and a two-up ask and, and what I mean by this is a one-up attitude and a two-up ask the one-up attitude means um, you know, not like you're better than other people. I just mean you env- you view everything you encounter in your job with. How can I do that one click better? Maybe just one step change better. How can I, you know, I'm, I'm really great at uh, talking through these spread- spreadsheets to my boss. How can I be a step better, a click better? How can I push myself and challenge myself? The second part of that, the two-up ask is then, okay, now, while you're looking to, you know, one-up each of your practices that you already engage in, Two up what you ask for. And by this, I mean, could you imagine if you asked for a stretch opportunity or or a stretch assignment at work that was so grandiose that it required two levels up in management to approve. It required your boss's boss to approve your ask that, you know what I want, and I'm making this up, I want to stay in my current role and I want to include in that role a teaching role uh, within this so I can teach the IT department a thing or two about how to develop spreadsheets or, or whatever you can imagine is aggressive enough that it makes your boss uncomfortable enough and if it doesn't, then you're probably not asking aggressively enough. A fantastic way to start to stimulate new opportunities. I'll give you uh, just, just one other example here, um, what, I, what I call carving out a niche becoming a guru and this one's very close to, to my heart i served for um 25 years at procter and gamble uh, tanvir in uh, in marketing and along the way i got asked many many times to come and speak on um, uh, leadership topics much like you do a lot of now as well and you know lo and behold it turns out you know i was I was uh, no, no Tanveer, but apparently I wasn't the worst at it in the world because people kept asking me to come back and speaking more and more and more. So while still at work at Procter and Gamble, I, I I really fell in love with speaking from the stage and I started to develop my material and I started to speak more and more at P&G uh, at places all around the world and I mean like many 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 times getting asked to speak and I eventually started to create a little bit of a niche of oh man. Scott Mautz, he's the guy you wanted to bring to a P&G event to talk leadership or to talk um, employee engagement or the how-tos of motivating and inspira- inspiring the troops. That's the guy you want. I carved out a niche. I'd become a guru in that space. And lo and behold, it became a big enough um, niche that I loved doing enough that I eventually decided to make a, a full run of that. And I left Procter & Gamble and created my own window of opportunity. Because I carved out a niche and became a guru in speaking to a certain type of audience with a certain type of topics in mind. And now I, I, you know, I've created a lifestyle and a business where I write about it and I talk about it I, and, you know, and I even teach about it uh, and workshop about it as well. So I, I created my own niche and became a guru. Those are just two ways that you can
1: stimulate your own opportunity. That's great. And I mean, I love that you gave some examples too. So people can see that it is very doable for us to do it. It's just that it requires us to move beyond that passivity that we talked earlier about when we talk about inspiration, where we think, well, I have to wait for an opportunity to come along and just say, no, no, life's about making those opportunities because you are making intentional efforts on your part to find these avenues where, you know, there's a need that you can address and that something that's tapped into your own inner strengths of what you can contribute to make a difference. Very well said. And that's, that is exactly right. Now, Scott, before we wrap things up, I do want to touch on one last enemy news. I just got to get one more in there because I just yeah. there's so much that it's. I really enjoyed reading your book. But I expect that we have some listeners out there who've probably been listening with their arms crossed over their chest thinking... Yeah, well, Scott and Taber, this is all well and good, but what if the problem with me being uninspired at work is not about me, but because of my boss and the working environment they promote? <laughs> After all, we've been focusing on any muses of inspiration that really revolve around us. As I mentioned at the start of our conversation, though, what employees expect is a leader who inspires them to bring more of themselves to the work they do. And in that anti-muse, the last one, the lack of evocation, this is something you address. Namely, how do we gain inspiration from outside of us? And especially, how can we be inspired by an uninspired leader? And I'd really appreciate if you could talk about how employees can nudge their boss to become a more inspiring leader. Because quite frankly, I get this kind of a question a lot.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's what uh, made me insist to my publisher that I include a section on because I have no doubt there are some people out there thinking, sounds great, dude, but you don't understand that my boss is a world-class you-know-what. <laughs>
1: exactly. And,
0: and I and I get that, and I really do get that. So I'm going to start by um, offering some tough love to your listeners and say the following. Um Listen, I've done a lot of research on this, Tanvir, a lot of research on it. And it it starts with a very important point that your listeners are not going to want to hear, which is that you have to first bring the attitude that you want reciprocated. What happens is once we start to demonize our boss, no matter how evil he or she is, is you really start to believe that stuff. And you, you really have a hard time finding any good in them whatsoever. It really starts to feed on itself. You find yourself talking about your boss over the dinner table more, talking about it with coworkers more, and as hard as it is, I guarantee you, uh, while there are exceptions, there are people in this world that are just truly evil as leaders, okay? For the most part, what i found is at least one-third of leaders that are considered toxic, they aren't really aware of the net impact of their toxicity. They, they don't know that, and if they had known, maybe they would try. So you have to at first at least start from a place of, I need to bring the attitude I want reciprocated back to me. If, 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 if you wouldn't want your boss to give, to throw in the towel on you, I mean, that is for sure. So you start, you got to start from there. Second thing is people don't want to hear this one either, but you got to learn how to give your boss feedback as Mm -hmm. difficult as it may be. No one relishes that thought, but I'm, I'm telling you, this is true. A lot of times the bosses are unaware of the Net impact that they're having on you. And it's much easier for us to just talk about it and complain about it rather than tackle it. And look, I'm no different. I'm not saying I would say the thing I feared most in my corporate life was going up to a boss and laying out like you're killing me here on these things. And here's what they are. <clears throat> so you have to be able to to get really good at that. And it's and I talk a lot in the book about how to do it, but it starts with a willingness to to do it. You show humility and transparency and empathy in doing it. You come from a place of, you really just want to help them grow, just like they they're invested in helping you grow, right? You're respectful. You're direct. You're private and specific, and you just, you get right after it. You write the feedback down ahead of time. You practice it, and then you stick to it, and you don't you know you don't back off of it, and then you make sure that you don't share feedback coming from a point of view of what you would do. If you were the boss, nobody wants to hear that. What they want to hear is, how can you help them become a better version of themselves? Those are two two very easy things. Um, one or two other things, because I do get this question so, so, so much, is, you know, at the end of the day, do what you can to encourage their investment in you. So even if it's a toxic boss that's just killing you, what would it take for them to want to invest more in you and to change the relationship, right? What would that really take? So you invite them in and you have the discussion from that point of view of, hey, look, I want to invest in you. I want you to invest more in me in the right way. Things aren't working the way they should be right now. But when people are presented with the opportunity, they're invited into your life in a way to make an investment to help you change, you just change the the relationship beyond a transaction to a potential relationship. And a lot of toxic bosses assume, uh, the ones that are aware that they're toxic, they assume they've gone to such a state that no one wants uh, their help and wants them investing in them anymore. And that's not necessarily true. You, you have the opportunity uh, to change that. And then, you know what, you just you have to do what you can to amp up their advocacy too. Being the kind of person through the work that you do, doing the level best you can do according to what their success criteria are, so that they're gonna to wanna to continue to advocate for you, especially if they know you're making them look good. It gives you another bridge into talking to them about, look, this relationship isn't working, we need to change it. If you're doing your job and stay focused on being the best you can at your job, it makes it more likely they're gonna amp up their advocacy. There's a lot more I could go into, but those are just a few tips to get to get started. But it really does begin,
1: Tanvir, with uh, bringing the attitude you want reciprocated. Great message. Great message there, Scott. You know, I know we've touched on only some parts of your book and some of those anti that you share. And like I said to you before, there are certainly other animuses I'd love to talk with you more about. But based on what we talked about here today, what final word do you want to leave our listeners with, Scott, for how they can become more inspired about the work they do?
0: Yeah, I, I would offer a different thought from what we've talked so far that has to do with how we give away our power. Uh, one of the things I talk about in keynotes that gets people um, tearing up and it never ceases to amaze me is this simple thought. It is so important, so important to seek authenticity, not approval. The number of people that begin to let their life be run by, I need approval from other people in my life, it begins to develop a pattern of, it's it's an insatiable beast I wonder what my boss is thinking of me. I wonder what he or she thought about me in that last meeting. I, whether or not you openly state it, everything is about how good were you in that last meeting? How good are you going to be for the, in consideration for the next promotion? Constantly st- seeking external validation is insatiable. It's one of the great ways we give away our power and we we, we start to compare to the wrong thing to others instead of who we were yesterday. We start to believe that we're not good enough, that debilitating self-belief of we're not good enough when we're constantly seeking approval. The alternative I offer is to seek authenticity instead. Focus on are you becoming a better version of yourself than you were yesterday? That is what matters. Not at the end of the day did my boss approve of every single word I said in that meeting. Have you become a better version of yourself versus yesterday? And are you living in accordance with
1: your values? Have you sought authenticity, not approval? Great message. Great message, Scott. And I do hope this inspires our listeners to take action and to know that they have something of value to share. And as we discussed earlier, to not wait for the opportunity to come, but to take action to draw those opportunities towards them. And again, I got to thank you, Scott, for coming on the show and sharing your insights. This was a, so much fun. And like I told you, man, there's there's so many more amuses that I'd love for us to dive into. We'd probably be here till nighttime and so forth. And But I <laughs> do want to thank you for sharing your insights on how we can reignite that sense of wonder and elation that inspires us to be that better version of who we can be.
0: Thank you so much. And uh, Tanvir, I did want to mention I prepared a special gift for your listeners. Um, If they want to go to scottmoutz.com, S-C-O-T-T-M-A-U-T-Z.com, I prepared a, a special workbook that accompanies the book Find the Fire. Uh, Research is super clear in the power of writing down key concepts and ideas to help memory retention. And uh, so if you want a free workbook that accompanies the Find the Fire um, book itself, go to scottmouts.com. I have it set up and ready,
1: waiting for your listeners. That's awesome. I'm actually going to go grab a copy after we're done here. (laughs) Because (laughs) it's true what Scott just said, just so people know, uh, as studies have shown, because we have two different parts of our brain. We have the part of the brain that deciphers information, takes it in through our ears and through our eyes, but there's another part of our brain that's used for mechanical. When we write stuff down, we type it. So when you do that, you're actually using two parts of your brain, which makes it easier for you to bring up that piece of information. It's something I share in my, some of my keynotes as well. So thought I'd just pay, piggyback onto your thing to encourage people to definitely go by your website and pick up that gift. So thanks again for the gift, Scott, and thanks again for coming on my show. I really appreciate it, my friend.
0: Fantastic. Good luck in synchronized swimming, Tamvir.
1: <laughs> Thanks. I appreciate that. Okay. Be good. I've been talking with Scott Mouts about his latest book, Find the Fire, Ignite Your Inspiration, and Make Work Exciting Again. To learn more about Scott's book, visit the webpage for this episode at tanvirnasir.com. And that concludes this episode of Leadership Biz Cafe. I hope you enjoyed this conversation, and as always, I'd love to hear your thoughts on what we discussed in this episode, as well as what topics you'd like to hear in future episodes of this show. You can do this by leaving a comment on this episode's webpage, or by filling out the contact form at TampiNasir.com. And if you found my show on Google Play, iTunes, or Stitcher Radio, I'd appreciate it if you could take a moment and please rate my show and let me know what you think about today's conversation. Until next time, this is TampiNasir. Thanks everyone for listening.